Pros Say, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-host, Alex Lawson. Hello, Amber. Glad to be back. Great to be with you. We are missing Haley Knath this week. She actually has returned to the West Coast, but we're going to hold down the show. We're missing her on the show, and we're missing her in our hearts as well. Uh, we'll see you next week, Haley. I had a few items that I wanted to clean up at the top of the show. Not really clean up, but a little bit of follow-on from a few things we discussed last week. First of all, Amber, you asked me about, we did a segment about stealing someone's voice, Rick Astley's voice specifically. And I kind of, you put me on the spot about the legality of stealing someone's voice. And I made a reference to The Little Mermaid. And then someone let me know on deeper reflection, not really an issue of theft because it's more of a contract dispute. Oh, uh, you know what? That's right. She signed away her voice and then, you know, it was an ironclad contract really. And then the terms were not honored and she turned back into a fish briefly. Um, So not really an issue of theft as it turns out, I don't think. I think that's such a good point. We should save that reference for all of our contentious contract disputes instead. Yeah, well, and that's also a reference to uh, having legal reporter brain, uh, which we also talked about last week. (laughs) Uh, The other thing, had a whole story about Birkenbags last week. We did. A longtime listener of the show, the man who, uh, my friend Patrick, wanted to give a shout out to Patrick. He actually introduced me to my wife and married us, and he listens to the show. He turned me on to this YouTube account called uh, Lockpicking Lawyer. Do you know about this, Amber? Oh, Alex. Um, did Had never even heard about this until you sort of shared it with our group. Oh, that's right. I dropped it into the um, chat. Yes. But it is very strange. <laughs> yes, it is strange. There's a lot of like lawyers on social media who like do side hustles. Like I'm the lawyer who does XYZ. Like the guy... There's a guy on Twitter who is like obsessed with with like baseball pitchers and does pitching gifts and videos. He was a lawyer before. He's called Pitching Ninja. Anyway, by total happenstance, the most recent lock picking lawyer video was the guy picking the lock that comes, the little like designer lock that comes with a Birkin bag. What are the odds of this? Yeah, that is some good synergy for us. And also those little locks just do kind of look like, I don't know, like a cheap little lock that would be on like a, a little girl's diary or oh something. yeah i mean you could clip it off with it like needle nose pliers if you, if you tried hard enough and that's why it was it's a really good channel i was clicking around i was doing a little exploring so shout out lock picking lawyer but he was like yeah this is technically the most expensive lock i've ever picked but also one of the easiest so i thought that was <laughs> a very funny bit of uh, uh bit of contrast there anyway uh with the deck cleared on that we should move on to this week's show don't you think yeah we've got a lot to talk about Yes, uh, everyone should stay tuned later on. I had, as I'm sure everyone knows, if you've been following the news, there was a huge disastrous train derailment in Ohio, near the Ohio-Pennsylvania border, and an environmental disaster is perhaps brewing there. You will be not shocked to learn that there's been a bunch of lawsuits filed, probably even more as we're talking about this now. And I had a very interesting discussion with our Ohio court reporter, Eric Heisig. He's been all over that story. Um, both about the suits that are coming in, also what the freight company who owns the train might have available uh, in their defense. So definitely stick around for that. Yeah, really looking forward to hearing that chat with the two of you. But I know you have some other news you want to talk about at the top of the show here. Yeah, we're starting with even more legal fallout from a story we've talked about in the past. This is the fatal shooting that took place on the set of the Alec Baldwin film Rust in 2021. This is a very high-profile story, as most people know by now, I assume. 
the film's cinematographer, Helena Hutchins, was killed on set when Baldwin, Alec Baldwin, fired a gun that had been errantly loaded with a live round instead of a blank round. This happened during the filming of the movie. And I want to give a few quick updates. There's a lot of legal strands to this one. A few quick updates before we talk about a specific, very interesting issue this week. You may remember that last October, we talked about a settlement between Baldwin and Hutchins' husband and son. That was like a, that was a civil case. That case got settled. But just this month, Baldwin has now been sued again by different members of Hutchins' family. This is by her parents and her sister. Basically, same kind of thing. It's a civil case seeking damages for battery, emotional distress, and some other things. So we will keep an eye on that. The other thing to know, it's very germane to what we're talking about this week, is that prosecutors in New Mexico have now brought manslaughter charges against Baldwin and others involved with the movie's production and its safety protocols. Those charges were brought in January. And what we want to focus on today is that Alec Baldwin's legal team is trying to get a special prosecutor that is helping to bring the case against him. They're trying to get that prosecutor disqualified from the case because she has a very unique role in New Mexico's government, which is where this case uh, is being litigated. I'm intrigued by the unique role in government, but also DQ bids in general are pretty interesting. We do talk about those fairly regularly on the show when one rises up. It can also be a move out of sort of desperation in a case. So can you tell me more about sort of the context of this one? Yeah, I wanted to first shout out pro se all-star, first ballot pro se Hall of Famer Andrew Strickler. <laughs> I've lost count of the number of times we've had him on. We're overdue, actually, I think. Um, but anyway, he broke this down in a really great feature that everyone should check out. And the basic argument for disqualifying this special prosecutor, her name is uh, Andrea Reeb. And the, the basic argument is that she is still working this case against Baldwin as a prosecutor, but is also a sitting member of New Mexico's state legislature. So the document, the, the motion to disqualify her, rather, homes in on a, on a passage of the New Mexico Constitution that's pretty straightforward. It states that any sitting lawmaker may not, quote, exercise any powers properly belonging to either the executive or the judicial branch. Pretty basic concept of separation of powers there. You might be wondering how this happened. And what you need to know is that Reeb herself is a former county prosecutor in New Mexico, who during her time as a prosecutor kind of just carved out a niche is bringing a lot of homicide cases to successful uh, verdicts and decisions. And she was brought in in this special role by the current uh, district attorney back in August. And at that time, Reeb was not a member of the legislature. She was only seeking a seat. She was running for election to New Mexico's House. And then she was she was she was ran unopposed in the primary and won the seat very easily in November. It's a very novel situation, and as Baldwin's lawyers put it in their motion, the reason it's novel might be because, quote, perhaps because no one has attempted such a facially unconstitutional action in this state. So uh, a lot to mull over here. Very, very interesting situation. Yeah, they're certainly saying exactly how they feel about the situation we've landed in. But I know Andrew's piece was really interesting, and he talked to a bunch of legal ethics experts about this DQ bid and if it would actually work. What's the kind of things they were telling him? Well, the short version is the prosecutors might have a big problem on their hands. And again, I want to stress, this is a 
it's not the lead prosecutor or something. It's someone who's brought in in a special role. I don't, it does, even if she gets booted off the case, it's not going to like unravel the entire thing, but it's an interesting thought experiment just because of the unique circumstances here. I think anyone with even a pretty rudimentary grasp of civics can understand the reason that there's a distance between the people who write the laws and then the people who have to carry them out and enforce them one side or the other, you know, there are checks and balances through those channels. And if one person is simultaneously on both sides of that fence, you, you could have a problem. For instance, you know, Baldwin's motion to disqualify her notes that Reeb basically ran for office on a platform of like really sharpening and toughening up the state's criminal statutes. And now she's literally carrying out the criminal statutes in this case against Baldwin. And like so many DQ bids, whether it's with a judge, as we've talked about before, or in this case with a prosecutor, even if she were capable of leaving her legislative work at the door when she punches the clock to go, you know, build a case against Alec Baldwin, so much of this stuff is often about appearances. You know, is even the, the, the appearance of, it, of, of something amiss is sort of a threat to the entire democratic experiment. Yeah, that, I mean, oftentimes yeah. that's not even about the case at hand. It's just the broader judicial system and maintaining integrity. Yeah, and I think uh, one of the experts that the, the ethics experts that Andrew talked to in his feature was a Northeastern University criminal law professor named Daniel Medwed. And he, uh, he told Andrew this. I do see a separation of powers issue, but it's also about the appearance of impropriety. Reeb could vote to change the laws affecting this case, like the rules on clemency, for example, or on sentencing. So this does undermine the appearance of independence of prosecutors. So that's, again, no one is saying that she like definitely is going to do that, but it's just, this is why rules like that exist. Um, again, these are just a couple of people that we talked to. They're very qualified experts, but I'm, uh, I'm very eager to see uh, which direction this one goes. Alex, that's a really interesting one with some unique facts. And I want to turn us to something else that I think is fascinating that happened this week and that we don't spend a ton of time on pro se talking about. And that's the leadership of various federal agencies and boards. We do have one that's that's worth it, though. So I want to get into it. This week, the Federal Trade Commission's lone Republican member, Christine Wilson, said she plans to leave the agency over what she sees as the FTC chair's, quote, disregard for the rule of law and due process. The administrative state is in shambles, Amber. That's what they say. <laughs> uh, the the so-called administrative state, I guess I should say. Um, but anyway, those are, you know, like you say, this can be, this can be a little bit dry, you know, these, you know, regulatory agencies, watchdogs, mostly stay out of the way. If they're making headlines, it's usually for a pretty striking reason. And those are some fighting words that you highlighted there. Yeah, absolutely. And Wilson, who's the one stepping down, actually wrote an op-ed for the Wall Street Journal explaining her decision. It's a pretty interesting read, if anybody's fascinated by this like I was. In that op-ed, she accuses FTC chair Lena Khan of abusing government power, and she questions the integrity of the chair and her senior leaders at the commission. This is a quote from that op-ed. I have failed repeatedly to persuade Ms. Khan and her enablers to do the right thing, and I refuse to give their endeavor any further hint of legitimacy by remaining. All right. Well, we know how Wilson feels. What should we know about her? I mean, I, you know, these public servants often operate in relative anonymity for reasons I just said. What do we need to know about her and the, and 
give us more about the circumstances that apparently riled her up enough to uh, hand in her walking papers. Yeah, I mean, when she's questioning the full legitimacy of the commission she's a part of, uh, there's got to be a lot of reasons, right? So yeah. Wilson's been an FTC commissioner since September 2018 and has been basically the opposition to many policy changes implemented after Biden was elected and Democrats took control of the agency. The main target of her criticism was a commission statement that was issued in November that outlined an expansive new approach to unfair methods of competition under the FTC Act. That guidance replaced some that had been used under the Obama uh, administration that tied the authority to the same analytical tools that are used in sort of other primary antitrust laws. Wilson said that the statement that was issued in November radically departs from 40 years of precedent and it leaves behind what was a consumer welfare standard that focuses the analysis of antitrust issues on the end result, like what happens to consumers because of whatever is being scrutinized here. And instead, she said it turns it to a more nebulous interest style test. Here's another quote from Wilson about how much she hates this. The new policy adopts a I know it when I see it approach, but due process demands that the lines between lawful and unlawful conduct be clearly drawn to guide businesses before they face a lawsuit. So that's one of the key beefs here. In addition, Wilson has also attacked some things that we've talked about in Pro Se. One of the big ones was how earlier this month, the commission issued some rulemaking that would have essentially banned all non-compete agreements in employment contracts. We had a really interesting discussion about that when it happened. Uh, lots of people are challenging that rulemaking, so we'll see where that lands. But Wilson took great umbrage with that, saying that the move would displace laws of you know, 47 states or so, and there's a lot of precedence about how to evaluate non-competes. And so Wilson doesn't like this sort of really far-reaching rulemaking that the commission has done. And then finally, in her op-ed, Wilson also pointed to Khan's decision not to recuse herself from the FTC's challenge of Meta Platform's acquisition of this virtual reality developer called Within. Khan's prior statements and work as a congressional staffer included her saying that all future Facebook deals should be blocked. So Wilson really thinks Khan shouldn't be involved in anything involving Meta. Regulators do be taking umbrage. You, <laughs> you hear it more and more. It's the talk of Washington. Okay, so, it's, so she, she was given space in the Wall Street Journal to air her grievances. Pretty clear what she's upset about. Meanwhile, there is a rather vast antitrust bureaucracy to run here. Where does that leave the FTC with Wilson off the job now? Well, the FTC is designed to have five commissioners. It's supposed to have three from the majority party and then two from the mi minority party. Wilson, however, was our last Republican standing because another Republican left in October. So we're going to be down to just Democrats when Wilson is gone. And Immediately, the impact is kind of minimal because the FTC does still have three commissioners that can still vote and bring agency actions and investigations. Three is like a quorum, I assume. I three know a lot a, of. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Okay. Three is enough. Mm -hmm. But some attorneys have warned that the lack of a dissenting voice in and of itself is a problem. I mean, that's just not how this is designed to work. Mm -hmm. And it could also lead to greater questions about the integrity of the body itself if it stays this imbalanced for too long. And then other antitrust attorneys have also speculated that given the strident way that Wilson is leaving, um, all of the things listed about rule of law, you know, integrity, procedural due process, 
that this resignation might spark interest from Congress. You know, Congress funds the FTC. They can investigate anything they see fit. So it's possible we'll hear quite a bit more about this. Life in and around East Palestine, Ohio, has been turned upside down after the derailment of a Norfolk Southern freight train carrying toxic chemicals three weeks ago. And now, residents and business owners are turning to the courts to fight back. Concerned citizens living near the crash site on the Ohio-Pennsylvania border have filed a flurry of lawsuits alleging the company's negligence led to the derailment and an ensuing environmental disaster. Joining us on Pro Se this week is Ohio court reporter Eric Heisig, who will break down the legal blowback following the incident and what's still to come as state and federal officials try to get their arms around the scope of the accident. Welcome to the show, Eric. Thanks for having me. So glad to have you on. We've been wanting to have you on. You're doing great work out there in Ohio, and this obviously is a tremendously important story that you and others have tackled for us. And the story is now, I think, thankfully, getting a lot more attention in the press than it was even just a few days ago. But just to situate us here, I think it would be useful to get just some brief background on exactly the incident that we are discussing here. What do we need to know? What we need to know is that on February 3rd, a Norfolk Southern train going from Illinois to Pennsylvania derailed uh, in East Palestine, Ohio. It's a small village on the Ohio-Pennsylvania border of about 4,700 people. I believe it was 38 cars ended up derailing. 11 of those had hazardous materials, and 12 additional cars actually uh, set ablaze. So from there, the Ohio and federal officials were, their job was essentially to try to get their arms wrapped around this. It was about two days later that uh, it really ended up getting worse than anybody thought it would be when the governor put out an urgent plea for uh, people within a one-mile to two-mile radius to evacuate their homes because they were concerned about explosions that would send shrapnel flying. There's a chemical in there called vinyl chloride that they thought would be uh, problematic. So instead of allowing that to happen, they did what is called a controlled burn. And from there, life has gotten back to normal to a certain extent, although tensions are very high as people try to figure out who is accountable for something like this. There have been concerns from people about the long-lasting effects of these chemicals. Is it going to cause cancer in years down the line? What about the, the short-term effects? Now, people have been complaining about sore throats and coughing and things like that. At the same time, though, uh, officials from the state and the federal government have been saying the air quality in there remains safe for people to actually live in. The same with the water quality. But these concerns are still arising. They were continuing even before the lawsuits were filed, but at the end of the day, they're still having these. There was a meeting yesterday that had about a thousand people show up. So these problems are, con are continuing to arise, even though the government says a lot of these areas are safe. Yes, understandably, there's a tremendous amount of uncertainty still on the ground there. And as you say, the lawsuits have begun to flow in. What shape are these legal challenges taking? What are they asking for? Just give us a sense of what we're looking at here. 
So it's actually quite interesting to watch them evolve as they've been filed. I believe the first one was filed on February 9th. And today, as we record this, is February 16th. We know a lot more about what is going on in East Palestine now than we did even just a week ago today. So the earliest lawsuits were filed on February 9th and 10th. And and they are very basic, just like the other ones. These are all class action, proposed class action lawsuits that are seeking claims of negligence, claims of nuisance. And at the same time, as we learn more, you're seeing more information about the alleged failure of a a bearing on one of the tra- on one of the cars you're seeing that being incorporated in it at the same time uh, as they emerge and as people's concerns continue to arise a lot of them are calling for things like medical monitoring a lot of these businesses want money back for the time that they lost about 5 days worth of business maybe there's some damages that others are seeking for what they lost in their home if anything and of course, the time that anybody may needed may have needed to spend in a hotel, spending food, clothing, or anything like that. So they are varying, but generally what we are seeing is a lot of class action proposals that are alleging nuisance and negligence. And the, as you say, the situation is fluid. We're learning new things every day, but the things we learn are getting folded into the complaints, like you say. I know you've been kicking around some reporting on exactly what kind of liability Norfolk Southern might be facing, probable defenses. I know I was reading up, I, There's there's been a lot of analogizing it to the PG&E cases in California several decades ago. And there are these questions about like, you know, you don't want to think about how sick do I have to get before I can prove that I can hold, you know, a corporation accountable. Um, what are you hearing from, from attorneys, people in the people in the area that you're talking to about what Norfolk Southern is going to do with this mountain of litigation that they're facing? Well, they've already started in a, in a certain way trying to address what seems to be trying to address the p- possible liability they have for that. Um, Norfolk Southern said in an email to me today that they've given more than $1.7 million in financial assistance to people who were displaced, businesses who were displaced, and they've already established a $1 million fund. And that could, according to some of the people I talked to, really get at the heart of what a lot of these people end up claiming. Now, as I said, there are claims for medical monitoring because nobody is going to know for a little while uh, if something like cancer affects them. That doesn't pop up immediately. And while vinyl chloride is a powerful carcinogen, uh, it doesn't show up immediately. But at the same time, some lawyers I was talking to were saying that things like uh, hotel costs, food, reimbursement for business losses, those were all things that could conceivably come out of Norfolk Southern's pockets if it actually gets to that point. Now, what's interesting about that is they are already going on the defensive about that and trying to help people as much as they can. Yeah. But at the same time, this isn't as clear cut. Uh, a lot of the a lot of the case law is not necessarily showing that there's a there's a case here, there's an explosion, there is a there's a chemical spill and that means you're automatically going to get money. Now, while it seems like it's the most acceptable remedy for something like this, something like a class action, you have to think, was anybody harmed by this? And these are the th- these are kind of the defenses that they're talking about. Was anybody physically harmed? Does something like a plume of smoke going into your house, does that actually constitute damage, physical damage to your property? And in that case, is it really like somebody physically entering your building? Does that mean that's what's going to happen? Is it going to go for anything more than reimbursement? These are a lot of the questions that they're going to attack. 
Something as easy as which way the wind was blowing on the day that the train crashed could have a huge impact on how this ends up turning out. Yeah, it's incredibly uh, interesting to think about the different permutations it could take if these suits sort of gain a lot of traction in the courts. And I, and I know you, you, and, you and others on the team will be on top of it. I did want to mention, this is sort of a side story to the very important story about the disaster and whether or not people have legal recourse to make themselves whole. But I mentioned at the top that, you know, it did take a while for a disaster of this scale to really grab the public attention. And I know there's been a lot of talk about whether and to what extent the local press has been able to cover it. And that itself has led to some legal scraps. You're local to the area, you know, you're in Ohio, at least. Uh, What can you tell us about what's going on on that front? I think that the local press has been doing an excellent job with something like this. We are obviously covering this in a very narrow way that, you know, obviously can be expanded to something much broader. But there have been many local people on the ground covering things like this. And as you said, as it started getting more traction on social media and more concerns from people in that area, some of the national media has ended up taking notice That actually ended up resulting last week in the arrest of a reporter from an outlet called News Nation. His name is Evan Lambert, and he was arrested trying to do a live shot in a gymnasium while the governor was on the other side of that gym starting his press conference telling people that they can actually go home. This was captured on a lot of video. This ended up being a sideshow, but at the same time, it ended up being an important one. This reporter was arrested. He was taken to the ground. There was video of the Ohio National Guard Major General shoving him. And from there, he got arrested. He, you know, there was a pretty striking quote at one point where he says, quote, this is what it's like being a black reporter in 2023. And that finally culminated yesterday with the Ohio Attorney General who had taken over the prosecution, dropping two charges against him. And so that ended up being a a sideshow, but an important one. And it came as the national media was starting to pay more attention to this, this event, which really was just a regional thing to Ohio and Pennsylvania. Yeah, I mentioned it only because it's like, like you say, it's a secondary issue, but, but quite in the public interest to know about whether and to what extent the media can cover something like this, especially when the, the facts are very fluid and people want updates as quickly and accurately as they can get them. But I want to close on this. You know, we're, as we've stated, we've got a bunch of suits filed. I can imagine there will be more. There's a lot of uncertainty about the safety of East Palestine and the other communities around there, the air, the water, as we talked about. What are you going to be keeping an eye out for, either whether, you know, open questions you have, we already talked about some defenses. Um, what do we need to be on the lookout for as, uh, as this saga continues to unfold? Health problems, I think, is probably number one, Um, you know, is (laughs) a lot of what they're looking at now could have key implications for what happens in this litigation. Do they find any problems with the water or the air quality in this area? Um, The bigger question, which we haven't talked about, is how big of an area did this actually affect? Some of Mm -hmm. these lawsuits are going towards 15 to 20 miles, whereas the only part evacuated was a one by two mile section of East Palestine. You know, how big of an area could this end up being? How big of an area could the potential class end up being if it ends up getting to that? These are all things that I'll be looking at. 
All right, Eric Heisig, uh, it's a tremendously important story, and we uh, are very, very lucky to have had you on the show to talk us through it. Uh, keep doing a great job, and thank you for joining Pro Se. Thanks so much for having me. We like to end our show with something offbeat. Amber, you have the floor. This is quite a silly one. Alex, I'd like to hear your history of butt dials. Have you ever done a really bad thing where <laughs> you just, you know, hit that button, somebody heard something you were talking about that they shouldn't have? I think I've got a pretty clean butt dial record, mostly because the first phone I ever got was a flip phone. And from there, I jumped right to an iPhone that locks. And you would think that would solve the problem, but you hear, you still hear about butt dials a lot, including in this story where it was quite consequential. Throughout, we are going to refer to this as a butt dial, but it's unclear if it was just hitting the button in some other context. I think, well, sure. you know, it's a it's sort of a catch-all term. Yes, yes. Yeah, there's a former North Carolina clerk of court who is arguing to a state appeals panel that she shouldn't have been removed from office after she accidentally butt dialed a judge who then overheard her say a curse word when referring to another official. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is a scourge. I mean, I don't know if she just like forgot she was on the phone or, but the butt dial is a scourge and it can, it can really cause people some, some headaches. In Tech is to dangerous. Aches. Yeah, it can get you in trouble. So the woman in question is Patricia Chastain, who served as the clerk of Frank County Courts starting in 2013 and then won a couple reelections. Her time as the county's top court administrative official ended in 2020 after an attorney named Jeffrey Thompson submitted to the trial court an affidavit asking for her removal and listing a bunch of alleged misconduct, including the spot dial. The trial court judges suspended her and removed her from office later that year. And basically, this is on appeal now. So I want to get through the butt dial incident, yeah, which is the most fun thing to talk about. The butt dial. <laughs> that's, that's, I think that's the new uh, Grisham book, isn't it? That's I think. totally what it's yeah, called. Okay. Uh-huh. So it all started when Chastain initially called Chief Judge James Arnold on uh, one night in July 2020. She called after a group of citizens contacted her about the magistrate's office being closed, and it was supposed to be open basically all the time. So she met up with a group at the office, and then she called up that judge. She says she called out of concern about the office being closed when it was not supposed to be, but others argue that what she really was doing was basically blasting the judge on the phone in front of a group of, you know, citizens that were all gathered to hear her do this. So some contention already, you can see. Yeah. Judge Arnold, the receiving end of this phone call, basically ended up telling Chastain to call his boss. That's Chief District Judge John Davis. After they hung up, Chastain accidentally called him back and was unaware that she'd done so and that he could hear her speaking to this group of citizens, she allegedly said something along the lines of either, I'm not calling John Davis, or I don't give a about John Davis. <laughs> One or the other. <laughs> it's important to be accurate about what people say, so it is funny that some sort of expletive was uttered about John Davis. We couldn't say exactly. <laughs> when, I, when I read the story initially, by the way, I, I don't mean to get us on too much of a digression here, I definitely thought she was talking about Jonathan Davis, the lead singer of Corn. Oh, well, I mean, in that case, this is all fine. Don't worry about it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, I don't agree with that either because I don't. Uh, anyway, that's a digression. Um, 
This is a chief judge of the of the relevant uh, judicial system they're working in. And so you, you don't want to get caught saying that. It's, a, it's, a, it's embarrassing at the least and potentially disastrous for your career at worst. But what kind of weight, what kind of punishment can be doled out for this, for an errant call, butt dial or whatever? I mean, honestly, that's the question. And obviously so much of this is very fact specific. But Chastain's counsel argues that a butt dial can't have the legal standard of intent you need to remove an elected official. (laughs) I mean, that legal standard would be as high as, you know, they have to have some level of corruption or malpractice. This is all under North Carolina state law. And saying a curse word in the same sentence as a judge's name is also not, they would allege, grounds for removal, particularly in this instance where it wasn't intended to be heard by the judge who <laughs> sure, heard it. Sure, yeah. For, for all intents and purposes, she, <laughs> she could have been saying it at her dining room table or something. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's a little complicated, the, but that's they the would idea. Say. I, th- th- that's what they would argue. Yeah. I, yeah, yeah. The officials that are in favor of her removal, though, have said that the butt dial was only part of the issue, that this was just one flashpoint in a greater series of problems, including that she allegedly repeatedly committed offenses while in office that did rise to the level of what they would call egregious misconduct. And it was stuff like she would visit neighbors who were having a dispute that was coming into the court system, going to the county jail to get a court document signed by a detainee herself. Um, Findings of an audit uh, are also part of this that that Mm. reviewed the clerk of court office. So there's a lot going on here. But I think it raises really big and interesting questions about Something like this, where she clearly did curse and include the name of a judge in the system, and it was in front of other people. So does it matter if she intended that to be a phone call or if it was accidental? Because it was still in a somewhat public setting. Yeah. What did your butt know, and when did it know that? And and honestly, the other thing that occurred to me, you know, if she was, if it's true what they say, that she's got some other kind of priors here of being a problem employee or whatever, however they would describe it, then this is just, this is the, this is the dial that broke the camel's butt, sounds like. That's 100% what it is. What a great place to leave today's show, Alex. <laughs> yeah, I, well, I don't know about that, but <laughs> we can definitely stop if that's what you're saying. Yes. That's what I'm saying. I mean, everybody be careful out there with your devices. That's our Please. lesson, I guess. Um, but thanks a lot for being with me today, Alex. Thank you, Amber. We also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our guests this week, Eric Heisig, and our contributing reporters, Andrew Strickler, Matthew Perlman, and Travis Bland. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, you should definitely leave us a written review that really helps other people find our show. If you want to read more about anything we've talked about, go to our website, that's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks, and see you back here next week.